there's pieces of that we're gonna kind of dissect here um but uh boy oh boy is toxic masculinity batted around by conservative christians these days in the united states it's a, a stump talking point as yet another mm. weapon in the arsenal of the mentality that the world is out to get uh christians especially evangelical christians right so mm-hmm. so define for us what you mean by toxic masculinity Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlor, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Zachary Wagner. He's the editorial director of the Center for Pastoral Theologians and a co-host of the C- CPT podcast. He's currently pursuing a PhD from the University of Oxford, and he has a new book, Non-Toxic Masculinity. Uh, Zachary, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for hand, uh, having me on. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Well, people can already tell from like your opening line that you don't have that uh, Oxfordshire accent. So, uh, <laughs> wh- wh- where 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 are you from? There, if you're if you're studying in Oxford, but don't have the yeah, accent. yeah. I grew up um, in the Chicago land area, far northwest suburbs of Chicago, and uh, lived in and around Chicago. Uh, for all of my life until I moved uh, here to England to begin work on a PhD in New Testament about two and a half years ago. Um, So I live out here with my wife, Shelby, and we have three kids. Uh, We came here with two kids and got a bonus baby here that we were very much not 
planning on but here we are <laughs> so uh yeah so that's that's where i'm from originally is uh, chicago area well, for uh, for all of us bonus babies that are listening to this, which includes me, uh, we are grateful. I, I, I that, too, uh, I too, I too am a bonus baby. Although yeah. uh, there are two additional bonus babies that came after me, so my parents <laughs> uh, had some uh, had some uh, planning, I guess, to figure out that took, took them a while to figure out what was going on there. They just really, really loved each other because, as my parents explained to me, you you were a love passion child. Aww. So. Um, yeah, and which is always also super grody when you're hearing that from your parents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the passion passion is an interesting word choice there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us about the the Center for Pastoral Theologians. Yeah, so it's this interdenominational organization, evangelical organization, that exists to uh, bring pastors together from a wide spectrum of uh, confessional backgrounds. Um, to both sharpen each other uh, as theologians and critical scholarly thinkers and uh, to serve the church and lead the church theologically. Um, so it's trying to recapture this vision that has existed for much of the church's history where the office of the pastor was and is a theological office. It's uh, the the primary theologians of the church are pastors and it's kind of only post enlightenment that we have pastors who are practitioners and kind of people people and then theologians who are nerdy academics that go hang out in the university you know and the, those are generalizations and stereotypes to some extent but we're trying to reunite uh, a bit of what um the kind of post enlightenment's splintering of so many disciplines, but certainly the discipline of theology and biblical studies uh, has done to uh, pastors and the vision of pastoral ministry. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to be reading a good bit of what you're working on your PhD here in the next couple of years, but uh, you want to give us a little insight into to what your, your, your thesis is? Sure. Yeah. It's completely unrelated to the, uh, what my book is about. So these are two very independent projects. My PhD research is on the language of wages from God in the New Testament, specifically, I mean, uh, if you want to get real nerdy, it's the uh, Greek term misthos, which is often translated reward, but uh, perhaps more accurately, and not perhaps, definitely more accurately, should often be understood as a wage. Um, so that shows up uh, a lot in the Gospel of Matthew, but also uh, perhaps surprisingly, um, a decent amount in the Apostle Paul as well. So it's looking at the places where this wage language shows up in this um, kind of economic metaphor where God is a master and human beings are receiving wages from him. Um, and uh, what the dynamics of that metaphor are and how it relates between Matthew and Paul and how that relates to questions like race and justification and all sorts of fun stuff so that's the that's the phd research so you know you're making the rest of us a little bit uh feeling um inadequate as you're working on this phd but then you write a new book <laughs> in the midst of all that <laughs> and apparently having a bonus kid uh so you have a new book. oh man uh, it's been a it's been a interesting couple of years yeah I'll tell you. <laughs> so the book is uh non-toxic masculinity the book invites readers to Recover Healthy Male Sexuality, you wrote, the world, the church, my generation of Christians, we all need a positive vision for masculine sexuality. 
Yes, it's a confusing time to be a man, but at the same time, the failures of men are all too clear. It's time for men to face the truth, to repent of our cowardice, to take responsibility, confess our sins, and seek healing. Um, I wonder if you'll take us into, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the book and stuff it covers, but to a certain extent, this this feels very personal. Um, so mm. I wonder if you'll take us into the personal side of, you know, this, you know the theology that kind of helped lead you to form this book. Yeah, I mean, there's a a saying that um, so much theological research is autobiography. Um, I'm not sure how that would relate to my PhD research necessarily, but it definitely relates to relates to this book. Um, there are kind of two streams uh, as to why the book exists, and and one of them is definitely this kind of personal uh, component that you're. Um, you're inviting me to share about. Um, I grew up very much in the kind of center of the purity culture, quote unquote, purity movement um, that I think really reached its apex in the late 90s and the early aughts. Um, a mostly um, conservative uh, evangelical uh white phenomenon that's kind of where its center of gravity was but it had wide influence um beyond those spaces and um around the world even um but yeah so i grew up kind of right in the middle of this i read uh joshua harris when i was very young prepubescent uh even and uh was also influenced by um writings of elizabeth elliott and uh, then another huge piece is the Every Man's Battle uh, book series. And I could list others, but those are kind of maybe the big three. Um, and then uh, just growing up and living into my adolescent experience and beyond it, I think I, uh, like many men in young men in my generation, um, had early experiences with uh, pornography when I was uh, a young teenager, and that became uh, a struggle for some number of years that was really difficult to to cope with on the one hand when you're inundated with all this purity culture rhetoric that is talking about the high stakes of quote unquote sexual purity. And then struggling with this new uh, ease of accessibility, as I think uh, many young people were with pornography, the kind of perfect storm of high-speed internet and then smartphones, um, making it that much easier, that much um, more anonymous and discreet. And um, that was certainly my experience as it relates to that. And then uh, growing up, uh, and eventually meeting my wife and getting married, um, we pretty much from go, although we weren't quite aware of it, and, um, you know, we, we could talk more about this as, if you wanted to, but pretty much from go when we got married, neither of us had had sex before we, uh, before our wedding uh, day, and uh, despite that, we pretty much immediately we're having issues in our intimate 
life. And that just wasn't quite clicking. It wasn't quite working. And we, you know, tried to find a groove on that and were making the most of it. But then about five years into our marriage, it got to a point where it just like was not working at all. Um, and it reached a bit of a crisis point. And uh, through some conversations with people and uh, then some therapy that we had pursued as part of that, uh, came to realize that my wife, Shelby, and she is uh, very open with me sharing this and in the and even in the book gives her kind of official consent to me talking about this, um, but found out that she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And she hadn't even been fully aware of or understood herself in those terms until you know late late in her 20s and uh that created a kind of focus for this crisis point in uh our marriage that became obviously something very difficult that she was working through but it also created a crisis for me because um i was having a hard time with the sexual dysfunction um, that had already existed in our marriage. And now it was kind of highlighted. And as part of the healing process and working through these revelations, our uh, sex life, such as it was, was pretty much indefinitely put on the shelf and uh, just said, we're going to set this to the side and work through some things. Um, so to tie those two things together, the purity culture background, and then these struggles in marriage, I think for men, especially, although it's all, also the also talked about towards women this way, in purity culture, uh, the narrative is often like, keep it in your pants and stay disciplined and restrained as it relates to your sexuality until you get married, you're going to feel like you're just kind of bursting at the seams, but keep it locked down. And then once you get married, go nuts. So singleness is a season it's temporary and it's about sexual restraint. And then marriage is about freedom, joy, and sexual fulfillment. And I was finding in my marriage that this kind of promise of purity culture was uh, not coming true for me. <laughs> and uh, then uh, also struggling with a lot of the like genuine emotional pain that I was feeling about that. Like I badly wanted to be a source of uh, support for my wife and uh, be present to her and what she was um, going through and be helpful in every way that I could. But I didn't, I, I didn't have a category for my sexual frustration that was existed alongside all of those feelings. Um, what does it look like in a purity culture narrative to be sexually frustrated in marriage? Too often, it's just, well, 1 Corinthians 7 says don't deprive one another. So if there's a circumstance that one person feels inclined to not be intimate, that's actually sinful, is sometimes the way this rhetoric is, is worked out. And I just was not buying that uh, interpretation. So really long answer to your question. Uh, but that started me reevaluating some of the messaging that I had received 
and the ways of thinking about sexuality and male sexuality in particular that I had inherited. Um, yeah. And the book, I tell, you know, snippets of that story in the book in various episodes. And uh, that's a that's a big reason the book exists in, in terms of my personal experience. We can't go any further without telling you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Just pieces of that we're going to kind of dissect here. Um, but uh, boy, oh boy, is toxic masculinity batted around by conservative Christians these days in the United States. It's a, a stump talking point as yet another mm. weapon in the arsenal of the mentality that the world is out to get uh, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, right? So, mm-hmm. so define for us what you mean by toxic masculinity. Yeah, I think some people, and you allude to conservative evangelicals as a you know, toxic masculinity is kind of lumped together, I think, sometimes as one of these woke buzzwords. Um, and it's just another another piece of evidence that of, of this kind of war on traditional values or whatever, whatever the case may be. And um, a counter that I... I don't think directly making the book. I, I mean, I do in the way that I define toxic masculinity. Uh, but a counter I'd like to make to that is I don't think anyone, at least very few people, when they talk about toxic masculinity, are saying that men and maleness is bad, um, or any any traditional value that you could associate with masculinity, like virtues even like 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 courage. <laughs> or or bravery or strength in a generic way is bad. Um, so the way I define it is that toxic masculinity is a way of acting out male embodiment that dehumanizes the self and or others. Um, so it's a way of men living in a way that brings harm, um, a way that of living that um, devalues others or devalues self or reduces self to certain uh, characteristics in a a way that is harmful. Um, I don't think anyone would disagree with the claim that there are, whether you think toxic is the right word for it, I think toxic is a helpful word for it, but there are toxic ways of living as a man, as as there would be toxic ways of living as a woman, I suppose. But that toxic femininity isn't isn't uh, something you hear talked about. Um, so, yeah, I think the the language of toxicity as a as an almost anti life giving, it's poisonous. 
there is a there is a way of living out male embodiment that doesn't lead to human flourishing but actually uh does the opposite well let's go right there um you you frame toxic masculinity as dehumanization of men but also dehumanization of, of women um what do you mean by that and take us a little deeper there sure yeah so i think as it relates to the you know the purity culture conversation or various abuse scandals in the church and the the critiques of muscular masculinity or whatever the case may be that are um i think rightly being being discussed today uh, a lot of those conversations talk about the harm to women and i think you can see how over sexualization of women sexual abuse uh silencing of women's voices victim blaming all of these things are dehumanizing to women i i don't think that's um all that difficult to understand um, but one of the points that i wanted to make with this book is that men too are dehumanized are dehumanized by not only the scripts of masculinity that they're given that either give them permission or actually form them in such a way that they are more likely to act out or think or speak about others in dehumanizing ways but also that men when you dehumanize someone else you are dehumanizing yourself and that almost gets to the idea that dehumanization is a synonym for what in the church we often just will call sin um sin is dehumanization when we commit a sin it is not merely a breaking of a rule or a missing of the mark, but it is a falling short of what it means to be truly human. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, we can, we can carry it on from there, but I'll leave it. I'll leave it with that for now. So friend of the podcast, Kristen Copies Dumay has written extensively about the history of toxic masculinity within evangelicalism over the last uh, century um, through Jesus and John Wayne. Dumay has been able to precisely link just generation to generational toxicities that have um, created what we have today. Um, a note to listeners, Kristen has glowingly endorsed Zach's book, um, but you take a close look at the experience within your generation in many regards, starting with the, the purity culture how did how did the concept of of true love weights and the shaping of gender identities lay the foundation for this generation of evangelical toxic masculinity? Yeah, so I also I also know Kristen a little bit and um, have so and and reading her book was kind of it was around this same time of this personal marriage crisis for me and me becoming aware of um just more and more of these abuse scandals and how they were allowed to continue and not addressed appropriately um so reading that historical narrative that she lays out um was i think as it was for many very eye-opening for me and she ends her book 
Well, I mean, maybe we can we can go there in a little bit, because, but I want to get to the question that you that you asked. Um, so I think this this kind of sexual story, this this uh, well, the story of male sexuality is just a part of this wider story that I think Dumais is uh, telling in Jesus and John Wayne. But I think in some ways, uh, while I'm not a historian, I wanted to take a deeper dive into the ways that the true love weights and other movements, like you mentioned, formed men. Um, cu a couple, couple things I can say there. First is uh, this idea that withholding from certain sexual activities, premarital sex specifically, um, guaranteed or drastically increased the likelihood of a fulfilling sex life in the future in marriage um, was kind of the trump card that purity culture would pull um against the kind of hookup culture or promiscuity culture or whatever you want to call it um that emerged after the sex sexual revolution and it didn't actually challenge uh young people or young men it seems to me <laughs> to make sex less in their vision of what the good life is or what human beings um, should aspire to for their lives. It just kind of moves straight into the stream of, hey, you want great sex. God wants you to have great sex too. The, the path to great sex is not, you know, hooking up with as many people as you can in college before you settle down. It is actually saving yourself for your marriage and then not only will you have this mind-blowing honeymoon experience but you'll have this really pure joyful and fulfilled sex life afterwards so ironically i think for young men who like you know i i am wary of stereotyping uh young men as uh necessary or necessarily or obviously more sexual than women uh than young women but um you know, to go with the stereotype of young men being kind of sex uh, obsessed, uh, purity culture, I think, just kind of like confirmed and uh, almost encouraged that in, a, in an ironic way um, and just said, hey, I know you want sex so bad, but it's going to be better if you do it this way rather than, uh, I think, situating sex in a broader vision of what it means to be human situating our sexuality within the narrative of redemption um yeah so that's that's number one and then number two is uh and relatedly i think books like every man's battle for instance um and the ways that you know in these different purity culture movements like for instance i went to uh, purity retreats as part of my youth group experience growing up um, tended to frame maleness in terms of hyper um, and in parentheses you could put heterosexual desire 
what it means to be male. This is almost the thesis of every man's battle. What it means to be male is to have a hyper erotic lens through which you view the world. And I'm really, really worried. I don't, I'm not, don't have the kind of social science credentials to quote unquote prove this, but I've come to strongly suspect that that type of rhetoric being fed to young men um, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy is when you're telling boys um, from adolescence or even earlier that they're just going to be obsessed and preoccupied with uh, the female body. Um, you shouldn't be surprised when they come to internalize that as a uh, kind of irredeemable part of themselves that cannot be matured in any way but is just a brute fact of being male um and i think that uh dangerously um leaves the church, christian communities um vulnerable to uh sexual dysfunction and male sexual immaturity and sexual abuse we are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. We're going to get to that last bit here in just a second. But I mean, being raised um, in this kind of culture, the church uh, taught me that um, these were uncontrollable sinful urges that I needed to keep myself, certainly not give in to anything like masturbation and, yes. and not touch my girlfriend. And yet somehow I was going to be completely satisfied when, when I got married and, yes. you know, I, I didn't receive this kind of teaching, but I know many even in, in the evangelical world that were taught the mentality that your wife will satisfy your, all your sexual desires. Yes. And, you know, as we've had more and more conversations on this platform about this over the last couple of years, including some people who do uh, sex therapy, just mm. looking at the psychological damage that calls for people, um, not only in their upbringing, but certainly in their marriages, like all of a sudden people yes. who were taught, like you, you, you got to stay away from this thing. And all of a sudden they're allowed to do this thing. And yes. they have this sense of guilt that they can't put their finger on why they feel guilty yes. about this. Um, yes. There's so many layers around this. 
Um, what people uh, don't recognize is that the shaping of masculinity and sexuality directly correlates to uh, views of women and the sexualization and abuse of women in the church. Can you help us understand that correlation? Um, yeah. Can you give me give me the question one more time, please? Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe people don't recognize that uh, the shaping of masculinity mm -hmm. in this kind of way. Uh, and the sexuality direct uh, directly correlates to views of women, the sexualization of women, and the abuse of women within the church. So, you know, do you see sure. a correlation there? And and how do we how do you help us understand that correlation? Yeah, I think the um, this idea that men are inherently um, aggressors as it relates to sex and eroticism and women are guardians sometimes is is the way it's framed um like men are going to be pushing it and women are going to be holding back and with and withholding it um and kind of keeping the men at bay but men are also responsible for keeping themselves at bay it's very bizarre um as as a logical kind of system but i think that sort of framework um it creates a culture of distrust and antagonism and um almost fear not almost fear actual fear between the sexes that is a barrier to authentic relationship and and friendship um women are by default mistrusted like i heard this at multiple um from multiple angles, multiple times in my upbringing, that for a married man in particular, every woman who is not your wife is a threat to your marriage, um, which is incredibly strong language. <laughs> um, when I, it doesn't seem to me that, uh, and, and this is in the context of the church, you know, and you think about the New Testament, like the language for, if you're a man, the language for women in the church is like sisters. It's not, uh, you know, threats uh, to your to your life and, and to your marriage necessarily. And that, I think, the fact that there is a space in the kind of Christian male psyche for men, a man to describe all all women as potential threats um shows so clearly the hypersexual like the eroticization almost or the hypersexualization of all male female in relationships and encounters um which again is a something that the biblical language of brother and sister would work against you know you don't uh, think about your siblings in erotic terms, uh, even though they are, um, they may be the opposite sex to you. Uh, we have just very clear categories for in brother and sister as to what non-erotic relationships with the opposite sex can look like. Um, so when all women are sized up um, and this is to varying degrees, and I'm not saying like all Christian men do this by no means, but uh, it's alarming the extent to which uh, Christian men are something sometimes taught 
to think about women this way. Uh, but when some Christian men size up every interaction with a woman as to whether she is trying to have sex with me, whether she's a potential sexual partner, whether she's a potential marriage partner, if I'm single, um, that creates a, a pretty dehumanizing culture, it seems to me. And it creates a barrier, you know, things like the Billy Graham rule is we can't just have normal workplace interactions, uh, for instance, with women because we have so hypersexualized um, male and female relationships. Um, and uh, in, in a kind of, um, perhaps it's worth saying, a heteronormative lens where we just assume that all women and all men just like badly sexually want each other, which is just not an accurate description of the world. Um, and uh, there was one other thing I wanted to say there. So yeah, the Billy Graham rule. Um, yeah, the qualifier that I wanted to say there is I'm not suggesting that we should abandon um, all kind of wisdom or boundaries or restraints in terms of how we interact with other people, whether they're of the same sex with us or opposite sex with us. Um, all relationships require a certain degree of guardedness and uh, boundaries. And that's good and appropriate. But I think uh, the extent to which uh, certain segments of the evangelical subculture have so totalized that erotic sexual component of relationships has um, become a real barrier uh, to authentic relationships. And then, um, of course, if the men, if the conception of masculinity is such that men are out of control sex machines, um, given the a dangerous enough situation or depending on what a woman's wearing or whatever the 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 advance or whatever the case may be it gives men kind of an a, an excuse or a pass on their sexual sin um or even abuse and assault because we have this kind of narrative playing in the back of our minds well it's like well men can't help it that's just the way god made them um, so we almost give a, a free pass, it seems. And then and then women, even even assault uh, victims and survivors are are criticized um, for being assaulted. I mean, that's that's um, really, really problematic, it seems to me. And it does uh, to get back to your original question. It does tie back to our vision of masculinity and male sexuality. You wrote the scandal of abuse in the church is every Christian man's problem. Even if we ourselves are not abusers, we are not um, precluded from participating in the subculture that produces and shelters abusers with alarming regularity. If you are in Christ, this is your problem and you should be a part of the solution. Um, help us understand um, our responsibility um, with what's happening right now, not only the past, but also the present, because I think you get to the heart of so much of what many people feel within our culture right now, which is like, I, I'm, I didn't do that. I'm not a part of that. Let me separate myself from mm -hmm. it. But you're saying, no, we, we've got to be a part of owning this. Yeah. And I think the quote that you pulled out of the book um, gets to why that's the case. I think I want to say that 
you know, many, if not most Christian men that I know are, are good men as it relates to their sexuality. You know, they, um, they avoid sexual sin. They have appropriate, um, barriers and boundaries in their lives to make sure they don't indulge in that they've matured in such a way that it's not uh enticing to them and uh they're faithful to their wives or whatever the case may be but um that doesn't mean that well it's it's not my problem then because it is the case and i think this is what's become clear over the past few years um as things like the Ravi Zachariah's story and the SBC ex expose and different things and denominations like the ACNA and the PCA, you know, it, it's all over the place. Um, these recurring patterns of uh, sexual abuse and misconduct. It is um, a feature of the system. And uh, it's, a, it's a grotesque form of evil infecting the church. And whether you feel that you have, um, you know, participated in that or not, because Christians are called to care about justice and because uh, we're, uh, we should care about our witness in the world, uh, we should all be taking steps to address this. And that includes um, calling out um, problematic uh, actions, behaviors, uh, when you see them, it means holding, uh, leaders, even beloved leaders accountable, uh, for, uh, dehumanizing behavior. And, uh, as you know, just a couple days ago, it broke that, uh, Carl Lentz, the disgraced, um, Hillsong pastor has, uh, taken a job at a new church. And I, cannot tell you how frustrating it is to see these men who uh, credibly and uh, even by their own admission um, sin grievously as it relates to their sexuality and compromise trust with uh, not only their congregations in general, but I think especially the women in their congregations um, and the wider church are invited back into church leadership. Uh, forgiveness doesn't mean restoration to previous employment or uh, <laughs> so um, that's one one huge thing that I see. And I, and I think for men as a whole to participate in being a part of the solution to this, um, this stain on the church's witness, uh, it does require courage uh, if uh, quite a lot of it. Um, courage um, to do the right and just thing um, in spite of what it might mean for my employment situation, the church's budget, um, the organization's viability in the future. Um, those are scary things to face. Um, and when someone's sin or your own sin uh, could put any of those things in jeopardy. But I think the the Christian call towards courage uh, requires that we do the right thing even in the face of, of um, great potential loss. And um, 
Yeah, and it also takes courage to uh, step outside of positions of relative privilege as men and adopt a new framework of um, of viewing the world and situations and relationships in the church uh, that women are too familiar with the, the position of uh, vulnerability to things like uh, dehumanizations in the way we think about or talk about sex and um, vulnerability to things like marital rape or um, or abuse or uh, mistreatment. Uh, for men to step into those spaces takes a lot of courage, it seems to me. And um, that's uh, so I don't I don't love um, the kind of every man's battle language uh, because I don't think like the essence of of masculinity always needs to be like this war imagery. But uh, here there, I think it's appropriate. Like if you're if you're if you're um, if you want to think about a battle to be fought as a man, uh, maybe it's not against sexual sin, but um, it's on behalf of um, the women who are too often dehumanized uh, in Christian spaces. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Well, so much of, of this and so much of the book is about, you know, reframing um, our understanding. And I think certainly one of the places people need to reframe is, is the scripture, you know, muddled within all the, this purity culture was the shaping of masculinity as something as fierce and courageous mm-hmm. and dominant and triumphful and and strength and you know, i remember the church pointed us to figures like david you know not the sexual assaulter david and the father who let his <laughs> son rape his stepsister but you know the guy that beat the giant and won the king's daughter you know that's genuine masculinity so you know you talk about um ultimately you're hoping people reframe you're you're ultimately inviting yes. readers to help build a healthy understanding of male sexuality and you wrote um, your pursuit of sex is a pursuit of something good. Your desire for sex is good. The desire isn't bad before marriage and good after marriage. The sexual nature that makes you desire sex, whether you're married or not, is good. So since so much of Christian sexuality has been framed around shame and hypertoxic masculinity and the dehumanization of women, how do we know what is good? Help, help us reframe for those of us that are... Um, survivors of evangelical toxic masculinity yeah i um i love coming back to this idea of rehumanization um it's perhaps a little um vague or underdefined but i in my own reflection on this in my life have found well what makes me more human or what 
ways of thinking about or acting towards others treats them like human beings. Because I think we intuitively, oftentimes, when you think about, um, you know, any classical, uh, any classical question of sexual ethics, whether for teenagers or otherwise, um, when you put it through the lens of, am I treating this person like a human being or am I using them for my own gratification in a way that dehumanizes them? Um, so even a category as kind of basic as lust, it is clear that that's a dehumanization of another person. It's a fixation um, often on their body um, that is toxic to, to use that language. Um, so the Christian faith tells the story of death and resurrection. It's a restoring of our humanity onto a path of rehumanization towards who we were created to be true human beings. Um, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of main framework uh, for what non-toxic masculinity or non-toxic male sexuality, uh, as I'm talking in the book is trying to do is trying to elevate the discourse around male sexuality away from maybe some of the more technical questions and quote-unquote rules to what is the good and beautiful way of being male that God created us for and it's not and and once you're you're in that space of thinking about the goodness of human embodiment and as I said in the quote that you read, the goodness of our sexuality, like our goodness, the, our sexuality, our sexual desire as human beings is good, full stop. It is a created good. Um, and there is a telos, a goal of that, that in my view is oriented towards relationship and, um, and, marriage and children. That's not the only way in which our sexuality is expressed. Our sexuality is more than sex. Um, but that is uh, the proper telos of it, it seems to me. So um, at least for me, you know, there are plenty of people moving out of purity culture who have um, significantly revised uh, their sexual ethics or uh, flat out rejected um, anything that looks like a recognizably Christian sexual ethic, uh, at least in my view. Um, but for me, that's not the case. Like my, my, my sexual ethics um, have more or less stayed pretty stable uh, throughout this process. And um, what it means to be a, uh, a mature rehumanized um sexual man uh is 
to some extent uh, a different question than the question of of sexual ethics. They're closely related, but that's that's um, they're it's 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 about what it means to be human, um, not a checklist for of do's and don'ts for sexuality, which I think invites. Um, more mysterious and deeper questions and, and discussions, I hope. Our guest is Zachary Wagner. The book is Non-Toxic Masculinity. You can stay connected with Zachary by visiting ZacharyWagner.com. Uh, Zach, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that Jesus came to bring healing and resurrection, even in the deepest parts of our humanity. Thank you, Andy. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.